Just a short while ago, House Democrats formally introduced their impeachment resolution, and it charges President Trump with incitement of insurrection. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says uh, that any trial of the president after impeachment could begin on January 20th at 1 p.m. Hello, I'm Catherine Tully McManus, and this is The Transition, a special edition of political theater. It's Monday, January 11th, 2021. Capitol Hill is still reeling from last week's violent attack on Congress. Lawmakers are trying to piece together how it happened and how to move forward. The House plans to launch a new impeachment effort against President Donald Trump this week, and President-elect Joe Biden continues putting together his administration ahead of inauguration on January 20th. He wants longtime diplomat William Burns to lead the CIA. Today, I'm speaking with Niels Lesniewski, about the Senate, what a 50-50 Senate split could mean for governing, and could senators possibly tackle nominations and an impeachment trial at the same time? CQ Magazine's Sean Zeller also joins us. He reports on the, a potential path forward for GOP moderates in the Senate to cooperate with Democrats, and he outlines the deep divisions among House Republicans. Finally, I'll talk to agriculture reporter Ellen Ferguson about Biden's pick for USDA and the tough questions he may face about connections to a beleaguered opioid manufacturer. But first, here's Niels. Hello, Niels. Welcome. Hello. We're looking at a 50-50 Senate, which we haven't had in 20 years. Can you talk about what it'll mean for governing? Is there a power-sharing agreement in the works? And... How might a 50-50 Senate today differ from what we saw 20 years ago? There is definitely a power-sharing agreement that will be discussed. The goal, according to a Senate aide I was in contact with today, is to have an agreement ready to go uh, on the afternoon of January 20th after the inauguration takes place. But how similar it will be to the arrangement of 20 years ago uh, remains to be seen. There are some things that just don't seem like they're going to make as much sense uh, now. Uh, for one, you can get nominations out of committee on a tie vote under the uh, principles of the agreement that uh, Senate leaders uh, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle had uh, implemented. Uh, this is different now because you no longer can really filibuster a nomination. Remember, since 20 years ago, we've had the nuclear option and the rules changed so that uh, a simple majority can, can limit debate and confirm nominees. Uh, so functionally, this means that a 50-50 tie uh, on a nomination is good enough to confirm it. Uh, and a 50-50 or, you know, half and half tie in committee will be good enough uh, to get it out of committee. Uh, the other thing that strikes me as potentially complicated this go around is whether or not uh, the parties are both interested in one of the sort of side agreements from the last go around, which barred the leaders from using the process, uh, which Catherine, as a uh, distinguished alum of the CQ legislative action team back in the day, you're very familiar with, known as 
filling the amendment tree. Uh, filling the amendment tree was not allowed in the 50-50 Senate uh, the last time, but it is so common these days uh, for leaders, both Republican and Democrat, to block the offering of amendments by other senators that I don't know that uh, Schumer and McConnell will want anything to do with not uh, being able to fill the tree. That is so interesting, especially the amendment tree is often used when also in a situation when so many big deals are being made exclusively by leadership. Another big question right now is what the Senate schedule looks like post-inauguration. The House is moving forward this week with impeachment, and that means an eventual trial in the Senate. What would impeachment mean for Biden administration nominees and other top agenda items that the Biden administration was hoping to get right out of the gate? It's an open question uh, whether or not uh, the Senate tries to come back early. Uh, There is uh, some reporting that is that Chuck Schumer may want to try and see if he can convince uh, Senator McConnell, who is still the majority leader, to uh, an agreement to bring the Senate back before uh, January 19th, when they're scheduled to return uh, to deal with articles of impeachment. Uh, President-elect Biden uh, spoke to reporters in, in Delaware this afternoon uh, after getting his COVID vaccine today. And he said that there were discussions going on with the parliamentarian about whether or not you can dual track nominations and an impeachment trial at the same time. Uh, So we could have the bizarre situation playing out in the week after January 20th, uh, in which uh, the Senate comes in in the morning uh, as the... uh, Uh, One of the leaders of our distinguished impeachment coverage the last time, you'll remember that the impeachment trial begins in the afternoon. Yeah. So there is, I suppose, a chance that they could be confirming the Secretary of State at 11 a.m., take a lunch break, and then come back and be an impeachment trial. That would be wild, Niels. That would make for also some very long days, but that's a selfish thought on my behalf. (laughs) Well, there's also the question, of course, with an impeachment trial at the risk of stating the obvious. Uh, the rules of the impeachment trial normally required that senators to be in the chamber and in their seats and not talking, which, you know, putting everyone in proximity during a pandemic is not what you're supposed to do, even though that was the experience uh, last Wednesday. Uh, so there are other complications with holding an impeachment trial in the middle of a pandemic. Maybe you can have an impeachment trial by Zoom. Or will they have senators up in the balconies instead of at their historic desks? Oh my goodness, so many questions remain. But thank you so much for bringing some clarity to what the Senate might look like once the Biden administration is in place. Thank you. Welcome, Sean. Thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here, Catherine. Thank you. In your recent CQ Magazine cover, you wrote about how last week's violent insurrection attempt by supporters of President Trump 
could possibly drive some congressional Republicans to cooperate with Democrats, both in the new Congress and in the incoming Biden administration. I'm, I'm so interested in this potential path that you see um, going forward, and I'm hoping you can walk me through why do you think cooperation is on the horizon after the division that we've seen in recent years and the violence of last week? Well, I should specify, I'm not talking really about a broad detente between the parties. I think that's unreasonable to expect. But I think we can expect that in the Senate, where we are facing a 50-50 tie between the two parties with Democratic control, you could see a number of Republican moderates more willing to help the Democrats than they would have been absent these, absent these riots. And that, that's a crucial thing because the key piece of legislation we'll be looking at in 2021 is a budget reconciliation bill in which the Democrats will do, try to do you know, all kinds of things because that bill, unlike others, can be passed with a simple majority. And a lot of attention, therefore, has been on the Democratic moderates, people like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and what what he would allow to go into that bill. But if you saw a Susan Collins, the Republican from Maine, Mitt Romney, the Republican from Utah, or Lisa Murkowski, the Republican of Alaska, all of whom were irate, really, about the riot at the Capitol, if you saw them willing to work on this reconciliation bill, that would open up more possibilities for the Democrats. They could potentially go further with more far-reaching policy if they have a little more wiggle room. That's an interesting look at what we're looking at going forward in the Senate. In terms of the divide that does exist within the Republican Party right now, I mean, I was there last week. I saw the destruction at the Capitol. I hid from the violence. And then that same night, I heard some Republicans issue condemnations and in the same evening saw Republicans vote in favor of overturning electoral college results that there have not been legitimate or substantiated issues with, free and fair election results. So this divide clearly exists. Can you talk about where those lines are within Congress, within the party? and what you think they mean for congressional action going forward? Yeah, well, I think I said in my piece that the Republican Party here is on the verge of a civil war, and I meant, I meant that literally. They're on the verge. I don't think they're there yet, but the potential is very much there because you had, for example, in the House, when they brought up these two votes to disqualify electors from Pennsylvania and Arizona, you had... Um, a divide, as you mentioned, within the Republican caucus, where with about two-thirds of the caucus voting to disqualify those electors and one-third voting against it. And you had some of the key leaders on both sides. You had uh, Steve Scalise and Kevin McCarthy in favor of disqualifying the electors and uh, overturning the election. And you had on the other side Liz Cheney, the conference chairwoman, and Tom Emmer, who just ran their campaign arm, for this most recent election, voting against doing that. So I think this has the potential to blow up and really split these two groups on other issues going forward, but it might not. I mean, I think a lot of it depends on how big a player 
Donald Trump remains on the political scene after January 20th when Joe Biden is inaugurated? In terms of those lawmakers who continue to support not just President Trump, but the idea that the election was not freely and fairly executed and that Donald Trump is the rightful winner of the presidential race, which I need to say outright is unsubstantiated and not true. What is their role going forward? Is it to be a thorn in the side of an establishment that moves away from Trump? Or is that where the par- you might see the party coalescing? I mean, it's interesting because I think the Republican Party, the reason you see this loyalty um, to Donald Trump, in part at least, is because Republican members of Congress both fear his voters and see his voters as their ticket to a majority. Donald Trump, for all his incitements and outrages, created a new Republican majority that won an election. And that drove over 70 million people to the polls this past time around in a losing effort. And so I think that Republicans are very mindful of that, that this group of people um, is their future and they don't want to alienate it. But they also want to steer it in a direction that I think they hope is less caustic. And so the Republicans loyalists in the House, I think their main function will be to try to keep that group engaged. But in so doing, they're going to help House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She's got this tiny majority, only 11 seats at the moment. It might actually get smaller than that. And she has some moderates in her caucus who won seats in 2018 in districts that Donald Trump won as well. And the thought has been that, well, these people could could be a problem for her. They could vote with the Republicans. You know, people like Jared Golden from Maine, Connor Lamb from Pennsylvania, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia. And I think, you know, the fact that this group of Republicans exists out there um, is going to help Nancy Pelosi keep that group in line. And so it helps her. And now in the Senate, I think, you know, the state of play, as I mentioned, is more in the middle. So this group of, of, of uh, Trump loyalists which is smaller in the Senate, um, is on the fringes of what's going to happen in the Senate, that the the game is going to be played in that 10 or 20 senators who are in the middle. Very interesting. That's so much to watch for as we go forward, whether this last week was a turning point or a flashpoint and what comes of it. Thank you so much, Sean. It's great to be with you, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Welcome, Ellen. Thanks for joining us. Certainly. Uh, As a longtime agricultural reporter, you've been really tuned into the agency, and you're very familiar with Biden's choice to lead USDA. Can you introduce us to Tom Vilsack um, just quickly where he's coming from and who he is? Well, Tom Vilsack was the one and only agriculture secretary for the Obama administration, serving from 2009 to 2017. Uh, He is a former Iowa governor. He is very interested in rural issues, um, not just to agriculture, but to rural businesses, rural communities, because although agriculture is the um, economic engine in a lot of rural areas, 
there are rural areas where agriculture has declined and other things are now part of the economic mix. So he has basically argued that Democrats need to better understand rural areas, what the issues are, what the concerns are, and what the priorities are. So this weekend, there was some new paperwork that came out related to his nomination um, that revealed some ties to Purdue Pharma and revelations about um, his finances. Can you walk us through what you learned from that paperwork and how it may impact his Senate confirmation? Well, all the nominees have to file with the Office of uh, Government Ethics. It's a federal office. It basically is sort of like their financial disclosure, what their holdings are, what their income was for the most recent year, uh, a little bit of information about uh, how they will, um, if there are any potential conflicts of interest, there's a separate sort of ethics agreement about how they plan to deal with that. Now, for Vilsack, the one thing that probably will catch um, people's attention and may lead to maybe some tougher questioning when he goes for his confirmation hearing is that he was appointed as a, um, a monitor for uh, Purdue Pharma, which is the uh, OxyContin manufacturer. And if you're unfamiliar with OxyContin and the, and the uh, concerns that were raised about the way opioids were sold, essentially the uh, Purdue Pharma was very aggressive in its marketing. Um, uh, is accused of not really paying a whole lot of attention to which doctors seem to be writing an inordinate, inordinate number of prescriptions for the painkiller, and basically to help fuel sort of an increase in um, addiction to opioids and a related increase in overdose deaths. It led to a number of, 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 of some of the farm groups uh, actually coming together to address opioid addiction or start to try and address it. And as a monitor, it was his responsibility or is his responsibility because he won't be giving that up until or unless he's confirmed. He has access to um, the company's employees, their records, their facilities, and sends reports to the bankruptcy um, court uh, and as well as to the board of directors. So he has a hand in sort of um, overseeing whether Purdue Pharma is actually sticking to an agreement that it, it, it made on pulling back on this aggressive marketing of the, of the opioid painkiller. Why did he accept the appointment as a monitor? What does he think he accomplished as the monitor? And um, what sort of is his takeaway uh, from having overseen the company different view of uh, opioids and their effect on people. Something that we see in a lot of ethics paperwork, especially when people have an array of financial holdings and different commitments, can you talk about what Vilsack has promised not to do um, if he were to be confirmed? So one of the things that um, Vilsack has agreed to, because the land that he and his wife own, the farmland that they rent to a farmer, it's handled by a management firm. So the Vilsacks are not collecting directly collecting the rental checks. But part of the land is enrolled in a um, agriculture department uh, program called the Conservation Reserve Program. Essentially, that takes highly environmentally sensitive land out of crop production. 
um, and in return, the farmer or the landowner signs a contract for a number of years and receives annual payments. Now, the Vilsacks received $11,000, a little more than $11,000 in 2020. And since it is a program that is um, handled by the Agriculture Department, Vilsack essentially says that he will not do anything, participate directly in anything that would significantly affect the CRP or increase land values in Davis County, which is where the farmland is located, because those payments are calculated um, based on the value of land in a particular area. I'd like to point out that he owned this land uh, when he was agriculture secretary during the Obama administration. And so his agreement not to do anything that would um, directly benefit him is something that he agreed to before. So it's essentially the same agreement. And that's that's about the only thing. Gotcha. Okay. So he's obviously been through this before and is signing up for more. Thank you so much, Ellen. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. From all of us in the CQ Roll Call newsroom, thanks for listening and tune in again tomorrow to The Transition.